Hi everyone, this is Caleb and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Mark Iaconelli to talk with him about his recent book, Between the Listening and the Telling, How Stories Can Save Us. Now, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I do want to tell you about a couple of things. The first thing is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. We believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we completely agree with them. We believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, whether that be something serious or something a little bit more trivial, including many different kinds of stories, as we're going to find out and talk about today. And the last thing is that we want to be the person who was there for us, or maybe the person that we wish had been there for us. And learning how to steward other people's stories can help us do that a lot better. Now, as I mentioned, today I'm talking with Mark Iaconelli, and if you enjoy this conversation or you've been listening for a while, the best way that you can keep up with everything that we're doing is by subscribing to my newsletter to where I give you all of the different things that I am learning about right now, the things that have captured my curiosity and my attention and imagination from YouTube videos to music to books to articles to podcasts to literally just anything that is capturing anything that I'm interested in right now. And so the link to that is in the show notes and you can go ahead and subscribe to that and you will get it once a week. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Mark and then we're going to jump right into the conversation. Mark Iaconelli is a speaker, facilitator, and author of five previous books. As founder and director of The Hearth, a nonprofit Iaconelli has worked with the Lilly Endowment, Compassion International, and the Mexican-American Cultural Center of Austin, among many other organizations. And Mark helps people learn how to, and different organizations, learn how to tell stories better, which we're going to talk a lot about today. He holds an MA in Christian Spirituality from the Graduate Theological Union and received a Spiritual Direction Diploma from San Francisco Theological Seminary. His work has been profiled and appeared in the Wall Street Journal, as well as BBC Radio and NPR and ABC World News Tonight. And he currently lives in Oregon with his wife. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. And just as we're getting started, you know, one of one of the places that I usually love to start is I love hearing the stories behind works of art, or in this case, your book, you know, between the listening and telling. And I know that that goes into a lot of your story, too. And so, you know, maybe we can just start with, I'd love to hear what got you fascinated and learned about stories first, and how that has led to writing between the telling and the listening. Mm-hmm. Well, personally, the first thing I would have to say is my dad was a very compelling uh, public speaker and storyteller. So his his public speaking always included 
many different little stories he would tell. And I was the eldest and I would show up at, uh, at the church where he preached or at speaking events or at youth camps. And I always sat in the front row and I loved listening to his stories and I was moved, you know, they'd make me laugh. They'd make me emotional. And um, so that was the first place I felt my story loving self or my story loving brain. Then um, in, in my work in spiritual direction and uh, retreat work and youth work, there was always storytelling involved, either stories that I used in teaching or in hearing the people I worked with would share stories, out, particularly out of contemplative exercises or retreat mm -hmm. spaces. People share stories as part of healing. Um, so, so that's that's where that's where it sort of began early early on. Mm -hmm. And then, what has it? Did the book just get birthed out of that, or what led to the creation of the book then? Well, so. Um, in 2008, 2009, I was working with two, two guys out of Southern California, Dr. Frank Rogers and Dr. Andy Dreitzer. Um, we founded something called the Center for Engaged Compassion. And we were trying to figure out how to help people become more compassionate. And around that same time, one of the questions we were playing with is how would you help a whole town become more compassionate? Mm -hmm. And what I had recognized in a lot of the work I had been doing is that story is a natural way that creates empathy and compassion. And so I heard the um, a recording of The Moth out of New York City, where people tell true stories from their own life. And I thought that's a model I could work with. And so I took that model and started working with it in Oregon. But I, instead of, uh, The Moth uh, focuses on performance. So it's regular folks telling stories, as well as celebrities and writers mm -hmm. and stuff too. But they're telling true stories from their own life, but they call them performers. And it's a little bit more of a performance space and you buy tickets to see these stories. And um, I wanted to do it in a way that focused more on community building. So this would be six people from our town telling true stories from their own life. But uh, people who showed up, they would donate food or donate uh, money that would go all be given away to a local nonprofit. We would have musicians who played. The whole thing was focused on community building instead of a show. And that just is a different kind of space. And mm -hmm. I felt like using story as a community building tool um, would, would meet the need of the, the high anxiety, the high depression, the, the, the rampant loneliness that we're feeling in communities. Story could be a way of connecting people. And so, mm -hmm. so I started doing that work in 2010. Um, we met in a pub where we had stories Then we moved, met in a community center, then churches. And, and so we get about 400 people come out every time we do a story event in our little town here. And it's, it's been a, a powerful way of developing a deeper understanding for the variety of human experiences that are out there, as well as um, building community in, in, a, in an effective way. Can you tease out like storytelling as a community, like how it builds community and what that looks like? Yeah. So, so story, every time I tell a story, even if it's just like, oh my gosh, my car broke down. I had to call the AAA, you know, we, we, every day, every human being tells stories. You can't go throughout a day without telling a story. And every time I tell a story, what I'm really saying to you is this is what it feels like to be me. Mm -hmm. Or, or maybe what I'm really saying to you is, do you feel me? 
can, can you feel the stress of when my car broke down? And do you see how the truck driver who came by and helped me out, what a miracle that was? And, you know, I, I want my experience shared. And I'm every time I tell a moment from my life, I'm trying to invite you to see what I saw and hear what I heard and feel what I felt. And so in this way, human experience becomes communal or it becomes relational or it becomes communion because I'm inviting you to be transported through time and space and to sit in my body and share this experience with me. So it's deeply connecting. It's, it's full body meaning making in that mm -hmm. way. And um, so if I use that in a communal setting where I've got a Syrian refugee and they're telling a story of what it was like to, um, to, to, to cross the border in the United States and if I'm allowing myself to listen deeply and to see what that person saw and, and feel their experience, there's a connection, a deep connection that's made where not only do I go, oh my gosh, that was terrifying or how difficult, but I also see myself in their story. Like, wow, I know what it's like to want my kids safe and to do whatever I can to get them safe. I know what it's like. I know a little bit of what it's like to suffer or to feel lost. And so... Um, so story is relational in that way because it connects me deeply to your experience and it also awakens parts of myself that um, that are similar to you. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. You know, one of the things I'd love just your take on is I completely agree with you. I think when you do hear someone's story, it does, it transforms how you, you're able to see them. It seems like we are sometimes resistant to get to the point where we hear the story behind somebody else. And like, I think you phrase it really well in the, in, in the book is that sometimes we can become preoccupied with the facts of the situation and things like that. Mm -hmm. I, I would just love to hear, like, what do you think is behind that? What do you think is behind that? Like resistance to story and focus on facts or just focusing on something else instead of the other person's experience or their story. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think there's two things happening. One is um, we're, we're losing the ability to listen deeply. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's what they're calling the shallowing of the mind. Um, as I live more and more on digital screens and digital technologies, I'm being trained in this culture um, to scan and to skim. There's lots of images, lots of information. And I don't really give myself time to process. I'm just sort of scanning, okay, what, what happened in the news today in Ukraine? Okay, what's going on with the Democratic Party? All this stuff. But I'm not really sinking into it and, and, and feeling it. So, so one thing that's happening is we're all losing the ability to really um, have a sense of deep attention or, or a contemplative sort of openness to the experience of others. So even when someone is telling me their story, I'm not really there. I'm, about, I'm in about four different places while you're telling me what it's like to be a single dad raising two kids. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not fully present because I, I have been practicing um, being scattered or fractured or whatever. That's one thing I think that's happening right now. Um, we all know the difference between skimming uh, words on a phone and when you sit quietly at night and read a book and let yourself go into that, whether it's a book of essays or a fiction book, and you feel your whole self. And what they found neurologically is 
The whole mind is alert and awake and making connections when you give your full attention to reading. That doesn't happen when we skim and scan. And that happens when we hear stories too. We, I'm just, I'm waiting for you to finish telling me this information so I can mm -hmm. make my point. The, the, the second thing is, of course, is I want to protect myself from stories that if I really let myself hear the uh, experience of someone that I call enemy or someone from a different political party or someone who's on the other side of, uh, has a different agenda than me, I know intuitively I might feel something for you and I might feel empathy or everything I talked about earlier, that sense of connection might happen. And if I feel that sense of connection, I might be invited to change both my mindset or my actions and I don't want to. So one of the ways I protect myself is I'm not going to listen to your story. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to hit on what you mentioned earlier about listening deeply and like re like re-engaging that ability to, I guess, like focus, like whether it be listening yes. or engaging in that, like what has helped you get better at that? Because like, I find I'm in the same way. I find myself like, man, I can't yeah. focus the way that I used to, or I can't engage as much as I would like to, what's helped you with that? Well, well, first of all, it's, it's deliberately um, setting aside a time, time away from digital media. So, so just reading differently helps me, um, you know, having my phone next to my bed at night, I'm tempted, even if I have a delicious novel, I will turn to my phone before I'll go back to the novel. Cause I just want it. There's so many interesting things and it's like candy, you know? So I have to keep the phone out of my room so that I have no other choice but to read the book and then allow myself to have a deeper experience of ideas and, and of myself. Same thing happens with people. Like it's sometimes I need to realize, you know, well, I'll give you an example. When my daughter was little. If I wasn't really paying, if she's trying to get my attention, sometimes I would pick her up when she was like three or four years old. And I just hold her while I'm talking to another adult and I'm kind of responding to her like, yes, Gracie. Yeah, I'll get you that in a minute. And she would grab my face with both hands and turn my head so that I would be looking at her instead of just responding to her. Like she wants my full attention. And so sometimes mentally, I will have that image in my head. Like, hold on a second. Caleb's trying to tell me something here. Stop thinking of three different things. You know, push, direct my eyes at him, direct my face at him, face him, just listen. And so I have to kind of internally tell myself that you know, mm, when I yeah. catch myself not listening. Yeah. And then, of course, it's just just other times when I just like, oh, you know, um, I'm having dinner with Jill, my wife right now. I'm not really here. I need to get here and pay attention. So noticing more and more that I, I'm scanning, I'm skimming, I'm multitasking, and I don't want to live that way mm. and, and then directing myself. Mm. But you have to set aside times for it. You have to and you have to put the devices away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the quotes from the book that I think resonated deeply, and I would love to kind of break it down and ask you a couple of things about it, is you write, we are made from the stories we've been told, the stories we tell ourselves, and the stories we tell one another. And I kind of want to break that down with you. And like, I would just love to hear from you, like maybe starting with, I'd love to hear about a story that that you've been told that has helped shape like who you are today? Well, I mean, I'll give you a positive example. I yeah. mean, um, 
so so I grew up with the Christian stories. I grew up with a lot of stories about Jesus, and and I and I was I feel like I was lucky. I grew up with healthy religion. Yeah. And I have many friends and family who grew up with unhealthy religion that did in terrible trauma and damage to them. I'm not one of those people. Um, I was lucky. I was around people who were really struggling with how do I live a life of service and generosity and kindness and patience? And I felt that in the stories. Like I, I got the dynamics that, okay, Jesus is trying to help this woman who's who's hemorrhaging and everybody else is telling him to hurry up or she's she's a marginalized person. You know, why are you spending time? But then I would watch him like slow down and say, wait a minute. And then say to her, like, you know, your faith, you know, your your trust is healing you. Those things got under my skin so that when I even in fourth grade, I remember noticing kids who were picked on or marginalized and knew I have to be friends with those kids or I need to find a way to stand up for those kids because that's what you do. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that's what a man does. I mean, it was it, it affected my sense of masculinity. It, it affected my sense of because I knew I grew up in a Christian family, this is what I do as a Christian. And I just, at a very unconscious level, identified with those stories. Um, and, and and even to this day, it, it really affects the way I see the world, those mm. stories do. Mm. So I'll be in a situation, and the way I interpret the situation is a biblical story will come to me, and, and that helps me see it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great. One of the things I'd, I'd love kind of your thoughts on is, you know, you talk about the stories that we tell ourselves too. And that's something that in the last couple of years, like I've really been trying to just get better at identifying, okay, what are the stories that I told myself as a kid that are like still yeah. shaping me today? Right. Like one of them is that, you know, every, like I grew up as a pastor's kid. And so right. like, I grew up with this idea that uh, everybody's watching me and that yeah. affected me to today. Yeah. And I'd, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on like, what has helped you learn about the type of stories that you grew up with as a kid? And some of them were helpful and some of them, you know, we're not, we're not. Yeah. Um, well, well, let me just go to the other side of it. So yeah. one of the negative sides of those stories was like, there's, there are people suffering all the time. You need to be working all the time to help. Mm. <laughs> you know? yeah. And um, so that, that uh, I've always struggled with, with uh, being a workaholic. That's mm -hmm. been really hard on my wife. That was, has been hard on my kids. Cause I was just gone all the time. Cause uh, the other thing was like, uh, you know, Jesus doesn't have a family. So he's always out serving others. Right. Yeah. So in my, and maybe this wasn't true in your family, but if anybody outside the family needs help, they become a priority above anyone in my family. Mm. And so, and so it's like, oh gosh, I need to go help these people, you know, um, who live three hours away and I'll make the drive and I'll pay for the gas and I'll pay for the food and I'll have to, and then meanwhile, my wife's like, we don't have any groceries. We haven't seen you in three nights, no. but it's like, but I'm doing God's work over here. And mm -hmm. so that takes priority. And that has been a story I've told myself that has been damaging to me and my own health and, and, and my own family that I've had to, that still. I, you know, I, I get rid of one layer of it and, it, and then I notice I'm living according to that yeah. story. Again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know, my wife said to me the other day, like, uh, are, is it okay for you to have fun? Like just to have fun. And I realized, no, <laughs> you know, I mean, that was just my honest first thing is it's not okay. Yeah. You know, mm. so that, that's the story I tell myself. Yeah. What are some of your favorite stories to share with people or tell people? 
Um, you know, one, one of my favorite stories is, the, the, you know, is the story of how I uh, fell in love with my wife. I love, mm. we, we were in college and, and she, um, she was dating a lot of different guys. She's from a small town. She'd never been around so many different people to date. And she went crazy in a, in a really great way. And I was just one of them and I knew it and I knew I was in competition. And um, I made many attempts to woo her and most of them failed. But um, the way the story ends, and I'm just kind of abbreviating it here. We, we separated our freshman year for the Thanksgiving break and she sent me a card. Uh, this is the old days. We just had mail. We didn't have internet and all that stuff. And in the card, she basically said, like, don't give up. Like, I know you're trying. And, you know, and and anyways, I was driving back to school at the end of that break with I had two buddies driving me back. There was a snowstorm and we got stopped on the highway in this terrible snowstorm. And it was it went, you know, it was late at night, 10 o'clock. Then it was 11 o'clock. And I knew she lived two miles away in this little town, Oakland, Oregon. And I could not stand that I was that close to her and couldn't be with her. So I told my friends, give me my bag. I hopped out of the car around midnight. I walked into the town through the snowstorm. Um, I had her address because she had sent me that card. You know, this is before phones. I didn't have GPS. I didn't have any way to guide me other than I had this address. And I thought love will, will guide me to the house. And sure enough, she lived on Oak Street. I found the, the number of the address. At, it was on Oak Avenue. I didn't know it was Oak Avenue. I thought it was Oak Street. And uh, I went to this address, knocked on the door. A father came to the door and I said, you know, I'm, I, I have all these feelings for your daughter. I really want to see her. Is there any way she, I could just say hello to her? I didn't know what I was going to do. And the, and the father said, okay, so you're here because you like my daughter. And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, my daughter's five years old. And I realized I was at the wrong house <laughs> and this guy and this guy. And he said, what are you, who are you looking for? So I'm looking for this girl, Jill Catton. And he's like, oh, you're, you're on the wrong street. You're on Oak Avenue. And, and I said, well, can you just point me in the right direction? And he said, you should come inside right now because they don't want to go through what I just went through. He ends up calling, calling over to the house. He knows Jill's family. They come over. And from that night on, I stayed at their house through the snowstorm for the next four days. And ever since then, we've been together. So. I, I, my kids like hearing that story and I like telling it to friends about how we, how we fell in love that way. That is an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. I love that so much. Yeah. Uh, the other, the other little sweet thing I'll tell you about that story yeah. is Bill's mom told the family, um, nobody's going to sleep tonight because I had called Jill earlier that day saying, I'd really love to see you. Thank you for the card. And and uh, she said, why don't you stop by? And I said, well, my friends are driving. They, they, they won't let me stop by. They just want to get to, back to school. But Jill's mom told the family, nobody goes to sleep tonight because that young man is going to make his way. She had a strong intuition. And so it was one in the morning when I finally got there. And Jill was awake. Her dad was awake. Her brothers and sisters, they'd all been forced to stay awake. And they didn't know that I had walked, was walking through the storm. They didn't know. But when I showed up, there was fresh applesauce bread on the table. There was hot cocoa. And we stayed up all night and the mother just said, I just knew it. I knew she just had this third sense that, you know, I was going to be there. And she was right. Oh, that is awesome. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. And that's, that's a, that's an amazing detail too. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I know you help people discover their stories as well and even help like frame their stories too. And I'd love to just ask what, like, what do you do? 
to help to help someone frame their story or even discover that they might have a story that they want to tell. Well, this is this is my the favorite part of my life's work right now is helping yeah. people craft stories. Because mostly in the work I do that's about community building. So I'm working with a community that's has trauma, or I'm working with a group that's working on social justice, or um, so the people who are telling stories have a moral imperative. They really want to tell this, but they're terrified because they don't want to stand in front of an audience. They don't mm-hmm. want to, you know, but they're pushing past that fear. So it's a very beautiful um, kind of um, privilege to work with these people. So what often happens is a person will try to tell a story from their life. Let's say this, let's say the theme is letting go and we're raising money for a hospice program. And, and, and this is a nurse who wants to tell a story. Often they'll tell me a story that they think will entertain and they think is the story people want to hear. And the real story is hiding outside in the car. You know, the real story mm-hmm. is so close to them, they can't feel it. So the first thing I do is like, okay, tell me the story. And they'll tell me, and then I'll start asking just lots of questions about their life. But the whole time I'm listening for that lightning that goes off where you just feel, where we both go silent, where we both go like, here's the story. I'll give you an example. I was working in Wales. This is in the book. I was in Wales. Um, We were, this was right before Brexit. And there was an organization wanted to raise money for refugees. And um, there were over 5,000 refugees in France trying to get in the, into the UK. And there was a lot of animosity towards these refugees. So we were doing this event where people would tell stories to help soften and de- develop deeper awareness over the plight of these refugees. So I meet with this woman. She had started an organization that provided medicine and food for refugees. And she told me her story. And it was very based on statistics and facts. And it was like a lecture. And I I couldn't understand, like, there's there's no story here. So I just said, um, you know, so when was the moment that you decided to start this organization? You know, very few people give their time like this. She said, I'm on an elliptical, I'm exercising, and I was going through my phone, and I saw an image of a drowned toddler, two and a half years old, on the beach in Greece. Uh, had, had had his body had washed ashore. And many of us saw that. I don't know if you remember that, but that was a famous image of this drowned mm-hmm. little boy. And um, these were refugees trying to, people trying to escape Libya. And uh, and she said, when I saw that, I realized I have to do something about this. And so like, there'll be a moment like that where you'll feel a lot of emotion. And so I thought, okay, something's here. And I remember pausing and saying, okay, millions of us saw that picture and we didn't do anything. You know, why did you, decide to do something. Mm-hmm. And I still remember, you know, I'm getting chills. I tell this, I remember her leaning across the table and looking at me with kind of anger and tears in her eyes. And she said, because I know what it's like to lose a son. Mm-hmm. And in a moment like that, it's like, okay, the story's here. Like we've hit the primary energy that has given rise to her passion around this work. And so then we could feel like, okay, the story's in the room. Let's go back and figure out how do we piece this thing together. And then it's a matter of finding the scenes that communicate that passion or or the heart of that experience that she wants others to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that that story began with her talking about living in Colombia and having this baby and the baby dies when um, um, once one years old, and she had to leave the country because she was in such pain. And then he, 
as she learned about the pain of other people who were losing children and losing lives and suffering these refugees camp, refugee camps, she had a strong empathy and compassion for them and said, this could be prevented. These deaths could be stopped. These children could be helped. Let's do something. And, uh, and that's the story she told. And that night in the room were two people who were pro-Brexit, anti-refugee, who um, they had lived next to Ordois in Wales, and they came to support me. And they were the first two to sign up with that agency. And they said, we, we had this wrong. We want to help. And this is the way story converts people. If we had a night to debate Brexit or debate debate immigration, nobody would have changed. <laughs> yeah. Everybody would come in with their mindset. But story works beneath right and wrong. It, it works beneath true and false. It works in the world of experience. And because those two folks were willing to listen to her story and experience it with her, they came out on the other end with a different mindset around this issue you know i'd be curious to to hear you know as you're as you're learning about people's stories or trying to get to know people do you have any favorite questions or just things that you like to ask people that help you get to know better like one of my one of my favorite ones that i love to ask people is like tell me what you're most excited about right now or you know tell me tell me if you're not doing anything for work what are you doing do you have anything like that yeah, you know, mostly. So, so what I'm trying to do, yeah. like like those questions you just asked right there, it's possible that the, that the people you're talking to will give you ideas, yeah, and thoughts. And I'm always trying to get into experience. So if you mm -hmm. said, so what do you like to do in a normal day? Yeah, and a person would say, well, you know, I mostly try to visit with friends. I'm a caring person. Okay, I don't that that kind of talk is not going to get me where we want to go. Yeah. So I'll say, tell me about a moment. Give me a moment or tell me an experience or show me if, if this was a film, give me an image that helps me experience helping a friend. You said you like to help friends. Can you mm -hmm. tell me one moment or can you show me what that looks like? And even then people will sometimes skip. Oh, it looks like a yeah. lot of things, you know, it looks like. And so I'm constantly drilling down to get into an image, mm. basically, you know, mm. uh, that, that helps me. So, so what happens in story, right, is story, I, I think I said this earlier, it's full body meaning making. So mm -hmm. if I can't see it or hear it or feel it on my skin or have my emo or have my emotions wake up, then I'm, all, I'm mostly asleep. It's just it's just my intellect that's awake. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm going to ask questions to help get my body involved. Mm -hmm. What do you ask whenever it's someone who is a little bit more difficult and it's like, okay, you know, they're, they're giving the ideas like you were mentioned. What, what's your strategy then? Or what, what do you do to help pick out what the story is or help them discover what the story is? Well, if somebody says something like, um, you know, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm always nice to people, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a value of mine. I'm always nice. And that's that's a sort of an idea. And I said, well, give me an example of being nice. Well, you know, just helping somebody to store it. Well, when did you decide? What was the moment when you decided you were going to be nice? You know, I'm 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 just looking for the experience because my I don't know about you. You do this podcast thing, but most of our ideas are rooted and grounded in the flesh and blood of real human experience. Yeah. And when a person tells me being nice is one of my most important values, there's a story behind that idea. Yeah. And so I, I'm looking for an experience that 
that caused them to think that. So they might say, well, my grandma was always nice. Okay, tell me about your grandma. My grandma suffered a lot. You know, she had polio as a kid and she did it. Okay, so now I'm getting a little bit more yeah. towards that story feeling. Yeah. Well, I feel like I need to ask you, like, when did you decide that you were going to pursue storytelling and helping other people? And I know that we touched on it a little bit, but was yeah. there a moment for you to where you decided this is what I want to do? Yes. To help other people tell stories. Yes. And that was, um, and I, I tell some of this story in the book, but it was the first time I decided to hold a story event in our town. And that mm -hmm. was 2010 Valentine's day. And, um, it was love stories was the theme. I found six people to tell stories and, um, I, you had to bring $4 or four cans of food. We we're going to give away. The bar was packed. Not only was it filled inside the bar, but there were people outside the bar who cranked the windows open and, and opened the doors and were leaning in to hear these stories. So first of all, I thought like, okay, there's a yearning here to hear. And, you know, these are six regular folks, you know, a night nurse and a retired teacher and, you know, stuff like that. They were regular people. They weren't performers. And I watched people just lean forward to hear a divorced woman who said, you know, my husband and I stopped speaking for 10 years. We lost all our money in the divorce case. We're at a graduation and our daughter is talking about her love for me and her love for my ex-husband. And we looked at each other across the room and all was forgiven. Mm -hmm. And we came together and just said, this is incredible that we, we gave birth and raised this daughter and we need to be kinder to each other. So that was one of the stories, you know, you hear yeah. stories like that, but it was radical because it's like, you're going to see this woman at the store the next day. Cause we're kind of a small town, 18,000. You're going to see her at the soccer game. And you know this intimate part of her life, you know, and it's really this gift that she's offering. So that was the night where I thought we we are so lonely and so disconnected. We're all craving this. Mm. What made you want to put on that event? Um, I, I felt like I have these gifts that I learned in the Christian church about how to um meet the spiritual needs of people. And when I say mm -hmm. spiritual, my definition of spiritual would be relational needs. Yeah. And it's like, I know these techniques. I know you need to create, a, a, you need to have people physically in the same room. You need to have different, there needs to be kind of a democracy and who gets to talk. Uh, you need to tell the truth. So it has to be an authentic space. Mm -hmm. And um, so I thought I know how to do these. And I wasn't giving those, I wasn't using those gifts in my town. So I felt unseen. Mm -hmm. I felt, um, you know, I was working in national projects, but I wasn't working here. I, I didn't feel like I was really participating in the community in the way that felt right to me. And I didn't feel like I was in touch with my own passions or gifts that, that I had lost that in some of the other work I was doing. So this was very much healing for me yeah. to sit in the room and go like, holy crap, this works, you know, <laughs> and yeah. something beautiful just showed up in this room and I got to be a part of it. And I got to use my gifts in a way that made me feel alive. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. What, what, what's a recent favorite story that you've heard? <sighs> or even that's happened to you, either that you've heard or that's happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, like just yesterday I was working with a group of educators who, who serve families across the state of Oregon. Some of these work in like the YMCA or they, they work in uh, 
uh, social service organizations, United Way and stuff like that. So I had them together and they were, I was trying to teach them what story, how story works. So I had them tell me a moment when you were young, uh, tell me a place that you loved when you were young. Just tell me the place and put them in groups. And, and I don't know, I got really captured by one woman's story where she talked about that as the place that she found that really connected to her were places of silence and quiet. Mm -hmm. And that she lived in a house with a lot of stress and a lot of anger and, and a lot of chaos and a lot of trauma. And when she was a little girl, she would look for quiet spaces. So there was a little tree that she could sit under outside and she would sit by that tree and the silence of the tree would nurture her just enough to kind of keep going in this family that was full of so much pain. Or there was a place under the stairs, she said, sometimes she would sit and she would remembered looking for where's the quiet mm -hmm. and then go there. And I don't know. That really struck me. Yeah. I felt like I felt I think it again, like the way story works, I think it touched a desire I have right now in my life mm -hmm. and, a, and a desire I've had at different points to just be the quiet in the midst of the storm. Yeah. So, so th that's the one that's hanging with me today. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah. What's helped you be, what's helped you get better at telling stories? Well, the most important thing in storytelling is the listening. Mm -hmm. So even like in the bar, I had to control the listening, the deeper, the listening, the deeper, the stories. If, if someone's telling a story and, um, and I'm not listening or people or people are glancing at their phones, the story dies. So for, for my own storytelling, it's I've developed a strong sensitivity <laughs> to the listeners. Mm -hmm. And uh, I notice body language when it's like, okay, I'm spending too much time on this. Mm -hmm. people, I'm losing people. So I need to keep moving, keep moving the story along. Or I see a quizzical look and it's like, I didn't explain that well. I need to describe mm -hmm. that a little better. And uh, or I'm talking too fast. I can feel that sometimes. So I think I'm super attentive to listeners and that makes me a, a better storyteller. Mm -hmm. Now that ability that I have is grounded in a wound, <laughs> you know, which is, you know, my dad was a great storyteller. He also had a super short attention span. And so when I was growing up, um, if he said, Hey, how was school today? I knew I had two minutes to catch his attention. If I mm -hmm. spent too much time on a setting or, or my my talking didn't make any sense i was going to lose him and i really wanted that attention mm -hmm. so part of the reason i learned to tell stories well is um is having a dad that's just like who was just he, he was a it was an exercise in how do i keep attention mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like you you share about like I, I guess it's the conflict i guess you could say that you write about in in the book of um, talking with your dad about that. Like, would you mind sharing as much as you're comfortable? Would you mind yeah. sharing just a little bit about so, that? Yeah. It's, so, so my dad was just, uh, he was the life of the party in mm -hmm. any room. Funny, gregarious, um, uh, really kind of radically kind in this really fun, fun way, you know, like, uh, Oh, wow. These, you know, these, these people are coming over. Let's go to the store. We're going to make a feast tonight, you know, stuff like that. And he was super fun, but, um, and he was really always concerned about passion. What's your passion? How do you live your passion? Mm -hmm. What he, 
was not so good at was the ordinary, which is where mostly life is. And so, yes, it was a tension as a lot of my unconscious drives as the eldest son was to get more time with my dad and to be, uh, to receive his um, admiration, really. I wanted him to be proud of me and, and like who I was as and want to spend time with me. And so I got in the same field he got into. I always was telling him about my work, hoping to get his, but eventually I, I noticed this was unhealthy and this was, uh, I, eventually I had a bunch of success that happened in my thirties. I was on ABC news. There was a profile of me in the wall street journal, all this stuff. And so I finally did all these things to get his attention and it still didn't work. <laughs> and that's when I had yeah. a breakdown and uh, you know, where I realized, I mean, and so he and I, and in the book, I talk about this, I started to confront him about these things and this pain and that it upset him that I was, that I was like, um, felt, uh, it, it upset him that I was telling him like, Hey, you weren't really there. And, you know, I never felt I could just be normal. I felt like I always had to be on, you know, I had to be doing fantastic things and he was really hurt by that. Um, but eventually we worked through it and, um, and he could hear me mm-hmm. and that was really, really significant to my own healing. And, and, and it happened really within, uh, the year before he died. So I was mm-hmm. grateful to, to be heard, you know, which is such a key to healing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. What do you wish more people knew about stories or appreciated more about stories? Well, so, so story is a folk medicine mm-hmm. and it's, it's a democratic uh, medicine. I mean, in other words, everybody tells stories everybody deserves to be heard and everybody can listen. So we're in a very anxious and divisive time right now. What we can do is we can connect to each other in a deeper way by sharing the stories from our lives, which what that means is is kind of what we talked about at the beginning, Caleb, about setting aside a time like dinner Mm -hmm. and asking questions that draw out stories instead of ideas. So when did you feel most alive today? Um, anybody have an awkward moment this last week? Has anybody seen anything beautiful? Anybody, when was the time you felt connected? And you ask these questions and people start to tell stories. And if you control the listening, if you say like, why don't we just go around? Like everybody take, it's your family, it's your friends, mm-hmm. just a few minutes. Anybody else have a moment you felt really connected? Actually, I did. You know, I was working in the community garden and, you know, I met this guy, Mr. Wolf and whatever. Mm-hmm. When we share stories, um, what I notice is people's bodies kind of regulate, calm down a little bit in, in the joy and the connection of stories, that um, that it's a contemplative experience. We feel more present to ourselves and present to others. It's a nurturing experience. You know, stories are a kind of soul food. And when, you, when we talk in that real way and, and exchange experiences, I actually go away feeling more filled up instead of depleted from being with people. So what I what I really hope is that people will spend more time in this primary um, way of being human that we're losing. We're giving away mm. our storytelling selves to the marketplace and to the media when we ourselves are storytellers and story catchers and, and listeners. And the more we practice that in, um, in natural, ordinary spaces, um, the deeper our lives feel and the better we sleep at night. Mm-hmm. 
why do you think that's happening? Like, why do you think we're giving away like our, our sense of storytelling for other things? Well, um, you know, it's sort of like, why does a fish yeah. bite the shiny lure? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it probably, I'm sure there's fish who are chasing some, some metal hook. Yeah. I know this is not a worm, but it's yeah. so amazing looking. I'm going to have to see. And, uh, so, so I do know that there's a lot of, uh, uh, intelligence being used in these digital formats to keep our attention. Yeah. And we're just, we're just not smart enough to, to avoid the hook. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one of the things that that's happening, the bright lights and the, and, and the angry, you know, um, headline catches my attention mm-hmm. and I, I get sunk in, but we know, you know, we know. Every kid knows that these phones are bad for them. Mm-hmm. I, I've sat with teenagers many times and they all know. They call it heroin. I met with a group of kids. They said, our parents gave us heroin. And they and it's like, well, so what? So what, do you want me to take it away from you? And they'll say, if you would take it away from all my friends as well as me, then yes, please, yeah. please get rid of these things. These are 15-year-olds, you know, yeah. telling me like, this is bad. And that's what distracts us from the deeper uh, human ways of, 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 of receiving life that we're mm-hmm. missing. I want to go back to something that you said earlier, you talked about controlling the listening. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So when I put people in groups, um, you know, just like these educators yesterday, you know, I'll say, okay, so each person is going to share an encounter with beauty. When, when did you encounter beauty this last week? And you're going to get three minutes to talk. And I want the two or three listeners. Um, don't ask questions, even if you are confused. Don't comment. And when they're done sharing, just say thank you. So, so, and people will say, well, that's awkward. I want to, I want to let people know I'm listening. I want to make, I want to tell them, you know, like, were you in South Carolina or North Carolina? You know, oh my gosh, you should read this book. That's such a cool thing. Um, but what happens is when you just stay quiet and I'm allowed to just tell the experience, storytelling is conjuring a spell and I can bring that spell into my body and I can remember, you know, um, that moment down by the lake where the sun was descending and the colors were ricocheting off the trees and the water. And because you're not asking me questions, I can kind of fall into that dream state and tell the Mm -hmm. story. But I have to control the listening. Otherwise, others are going to turn the spotlight on them. And as soon as you ask me, do you fish? You know, you were talking about a lake and do you fish? Now I have to focus on you and what you need. Hmm. And the mystery of that moment that I was trying to present has dissipated. So hmm. I so I have to I have to put rules around the listening. And I have to put rules around the speaking, too, because Uncle mm-hmm. Bob is going to talk for a half hour if you ask him about a beautiful moment, you know. So I got to say, okay, Uncle Bob, you get three minutes just like everybody else around the table, you know, yeah, things like that. What else has helped you become a better listener? Well, I don't know why, but, you know, over time, I mean, I've had some training in listening, but Mm -hmm. I guess I've noticed so many times in my life when I have not listened well. And the pain it has caused my wife or my kids mm. or my friends when I wasn't really there or 
you know, I, I sometimes work with marginalized communities or people who've been tradition, you know, uh, have been oppressed in our society, and they'll kind yeah. of say, "Hey, you're not really listening to me," and it's just a little reminder that you know, in other settings, I'm like, "Oh yeah, I don't want to cause harm," <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I want I want people to feel I want to be the person who is present, and you know, um, the the poet Mary Oliver says the first act of love is attention. And I, going back to those early stories I told you about that I grew up as a kid, I want to be a loving person. I want the stories that are told about me. You know, I think I may maybe say this in the book, you know, all that's left when we die are the stories we've lived and the stories we told. Mm -hmm. I want the stories told about me to be, he was trying to be a loving person. He was working at that. And, and one of the primary basic fundamental ways of showing love is giving my attention and, and listening as well as I can to others. And I, oh, I want to be that person. I struggle at it. I fail at it all the time. But I that intention lives in, inside of me. And it, it sort of pokes at me when I'm not acting in those ways. Mm-hmm. Well, I got one other thing I want to ask you about, but before that, I always love just asking, is there anything that we haven't covered in the book or anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we talk about or cover about story, listening, telling all of that stuff? Well, well yeah, let me, let me tell you this image just because it comes yeah. to me. Um, yeah. I, I've been on a book tour. I, you know, we did about 40, 45 events and then we're going back on the road in a couple of months, but I did an event in Austin. It was about a hundred people. It was children, youth, and adults. It was right before the election. It was right next to the Capitol. This church exists, and a person, and, and they just had a suicide in the youth group. Mm-hmm. And the person who brought me said, "We know you're going to do this presentation on the book. We don't really need that. What we need is for you to help us feel hopeful again." And so what I did is I had people in intergenerational groups telling stories, just like I've mentioned here, a place of beauty a time you got in trouble when you were young. Um, so they weren't they weren't directly at the issue. A time you felt somebody was compassionate or kind to you. I mixed them up. They told these stories. And as people felt each other's lives and felt listened to and connected to other people, the reflection was, I feel so much more hopeful about my life. Mm. Now, nothing had changed. The grief was still there. The political situations were still there but people no longer felt alone Mm. and to no longer feel alone is the ground of hope. Mm. And so what my hope is of this book is if people recognize, wow, I could start connecting to the people around me in in a more authentic and real way and feel our lives. I'm telling you, you will feel more hopeful in a very dark time Mm. and it'll give you the energy you need to keep going. Mm. Yeah, that even makes me think of, and I think it's in your book, that I can't remember what the study is, but you talk about the importance of listening or stories being shared across generations. I, I don't know if you remember yeah. that study or not. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so they they did this study to find out, is there a study that or, or, or a tool, a psychological tool that could predict which kids who are raised in an at-risk environment will will be successful and which kids will struggle. And they used all these different psychological instruments, but the only one that predicted was what was 
this test called the do you know test and it was these two um um theorists from from emory university who asked kids do you know where your name came from do you know a time when your parents struggled do you know the story of your birth do you know a time when your when your uh, mother or father had success and the more stories you knew from your family the more likely you were going to uh, be resilient in in a difficult setting and the reason was those stories became maps within people's brains. They created the neurological pathways. Oh, my dad lost three jobs and, and was struggling with cancer, and he still found a way to support our family. I am my dad's son. I have that energy in me. I know that story. But the second thing was people told those kids the stories. It was a sign that somebody was spending time with those children telling them the stories. So there was a relationship there, and that story was bond. So I had that relational memory within my body. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the last thing I want to ask you is I would just love to hear what are some of the like stories in media or books or movies or anything like that, that like you have enjoyed recently or have really spoken to you? Well, I mean, I mean, just recently I I've really enjoyed um, the, and it's been on the bestseller for a while, but the body keeps the score. And it's it's about trauma. And, and it's one of those books that's like, this should be read as all, every senior in high school should read this book. Because yeah. it would help explain, it helps explain my own body to me and the bodies around me. Yeah. And he tells a lot of stories of, of how he learned how trauma works in the body and the way in which our bodies hold that energy. And for me particularly, I know that when we tell stories to one another, it's our bodies communicating and our bodies releasing things or our bodies receiving joy and love and compassion through the stories. So uh, I found that to be really, really helpful and, and and a really entertaining book. I mean, the chapters are three or four pages and it's you're kind of watching this guy. He's like a detective trying to solve what is trauma and how does it affect us? And so uh, I love that book. Yeah, I've read it. It is a very insightful and very great read as well. Yes. And anything else stand out to you right now? And if not, that's okay. Uh, well, I love Barry Lopez. They just, you know, he's an organ writer who passed away a few years ago. He has a set of, of essays that, that just came out. Uh, I know I'm reading it right here. It's Embrace fearlessly the burning world. Mm. And those, those essays help me pay attention to the earth stories, as well as just a contemplative guy who is very kind and compassionate to you feel that in him the way he writes and the way he encounters others and and the earth yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's great well mark i know that people are going to want to keep up with you and they're going to want to get between the listening and the telling where's the best place for people to go to keep up with you and get the book well um so the nonprofit that i work with that, that uses story and you can come to trainings or you can come to free events we do is the hearth community like hearth like a fire hearth the hearth community.com um the book i i would love folks to go to indiebound.com which yeah. which connects you you can get the book just like you do through amazon you can order it online but they buy it from your local bookstore or or local indie bookstores and that's really sweet to support those folks especially i've been on the road and they really need our help <laughs> so mm-hmm. indiebound.com and um the hearth community.com Awesome. Well, Mark, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for your vulnerability and just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us today. Well, thanks for listening and thanks for the the, the good questions. 
That was such a refreshing conversation with Mark. And honestly, I think we probably could have gone on for just a, just a lot longer. It was just very easy to talk with him. And there's just so many, I love learning about stories and I love, I love figuring out what we can learn from stories. I love hearing other stories, whether they be real stories or fictional stories or historical stories or personal stories, whatever that might be. I love learning about those things. I love hearing about those as well. And I think that's just my thing that I am reminded of today is how stories can give us power through not feeling alone, through knowing that someone else has been through what we have been through. And whether that be through seeing an example in history, through listening to someone across the table, or just in any other way, stories can give us power. They can help us endure what we're going through right now. And yeah, I think that's just what's just what's on my mind. The importance of listening to other people's stories, listening to what they have gone through and sharing our stories as well. Whenever we hear someone who is going through a difficult or a hard time and knowing that we can help them maybe not feel as alone. So that's what I'm thinking about from this. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to continue to learn um, and continue this journey of, I guess, lifelong learning and following your curiosity, the best thing that you could do is subscribe to my newsletter where I give you all the different things that I am currently learning from and you can pick and choose some of the favorite things that maybe you want to continue to learn from as well. And I usually include stories in that as well as stories that I heard, whether that, again, could be book, podcast, anything like that as well. So I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Mark for being on the podcast today. Thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for this episode. And thank you to listen, or for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. <laughs>